Exodus 15:21 And Miriam answered them Sing ye to the Lord for he hath triumphed gloriously the horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea Welcome to Walking Through the Book. I'm Stephen McCrary. And I'm Brian Bales. I'm Jeremy Hodges. And today we'd like to talk with you about the Bible. Specifically, we'd like to discuss with you Exodus chapter 15. Walking Through the Book is about these three things. We want to encourage Bible reading, demonstrate proper and responsible study of the Bible, and emphasize what the text says, no more and no less. We're so thankful for you taking the time to be with us today. Uh, whether you're taking a commute to work or whether you're you know, driving somewhere, whether you're just kind of hanging around listening, uh, we're, we're grateful for you to take the time to, uh, to listen. Before we do start, we do want to let you know how to get in touch with us. You can find us on Facebook. If you search at Walking Through the Book on Google, you can find us there very easily. Uh, you can also email us, walkingthroughthebook at protonmail.com. And uh, Jeremy, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing great, Stephen. Good deal. Uh, Jeremy uh, preaches at the uh, Wildercroft congregation, works with that congregation. Uh, you would say in the D.C. area, correct? I absolutely would. Um, we're not very far from D.C. at all. Mm. Uh, right where um, when you talk about D.C. or you watch television shows about things that happen in politics, they'll talk about things being inside the Beltway. And um, the Beltway is 495 and, and it goes around the D.C. area. So the church building is actually right inside the Beltway. Now, um, people live all over the area and drive sometimes uh, a great distance to worship with us. But, uh, the, but the building itself is just inside the Beltway. One of the neat things that affords us a lot of visitors from around the country who come to mm. D.C. to visit, to see the sites and things like that. So it's a very interesting congregation. Uh, we have a lot of people who are government workers, people who work sometimes in the military, mm. Uh, so it really provides a, a very interesting idea, uh, a very interesting place to work. Very good. What uh, what what's the website? Well, that would be wildercroftcoc.org. Bryant, you doing all right today as well? Yeah, doing very well. Doing very well. So, Bryant, why don't you let uh, let us know what the flow of the program is, and of course, uh, how people can contact you as well. Yeah. So uh, I am working as an evangelist with the church just west of downtown Savannah, Georgia, uh, right on the coastline here. Um, we have a Facebook page. If you look up the Garden City Church of Christ, you'll find us on Facebook. And our website is strivingforthefaith.org. Uh, we just recently put that website up a few months ago. Um, but that'll have directions and the address for the congregation and sermons that are being posted online, information about the church. Uh, so if you're ever vacationing um, in the Savannah area, we would love to have you. Uh, and far, as far as the flow of the program, uh, we just try to keep it pretty straightforward and simple, uh, which we believe is uh, empowering to the word 
to show the glory of the word and, and just the beauty of, of what can be understood and what can be discovered when we just think about what's written and allow uh, books of the Bible um, to really to define themselves by context. So we're going to be in Exodus 15 today, and we're going to do an initial reading, and we're going to just split that reading between the three of us. And after doing a read-through, we're going to make some initial observations, uh, things that maybe hadn't stuck out to us so much in the past, or it might just be things that we really see are, are just worth noting and, and talking through um, within the chapter. And after we make initial observations, we'll try to think about themes uh, from Exodus 15 that connect outside of the chapter. Um, could be things that connect to Exodus as a whole, could be things that connect back to Genesis or connect forward uh, through the rest of the Old Testament or uh, things that even connect to Jesus and the New Testament uh, at large. And after we make those connections, we're going to be trying to make connections of application as well, just trying to see ways that we can maybe pull out some takeaways from the text as well uh, to conclude our study. Absolutely. What, what you just described really, hopefully, is sort of a long form of what we're talking about in the middle. You know, we want to make sure we're encouraging Bible reading and studying properly and really get to what the text means, because if, if we don't apply it, you know, it's kind of pointless. So very well said. Uh, so we're going to be splitting up the reading uh, today, and uh, I'll be reading from the King James Version. I assume both of you fellows will be reading from the New American Standard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I will be reading from the Not a Secular Bible, if that's correct. <laughs> ah. Well said. Well, very good, very good. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will extol him. Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea, and the choices of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. At the blast of your nostrils, 
the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword, my hand will destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab, trembling, grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone. Until your people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horse of Pharaoh went in with his chariots and with his horsemen into the sea. And the Lord brought again the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. And Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a timbrel in her hand. And all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing ye to the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which, when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them and said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and wilt do that which is right in his sight, and wilt give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. And they came to Elam, where were twelve wells of water, and threescore and ten palm trees, and they encamped there by the waters." things that jumped out at me, and I'm not trying to uh, make light of this too much, but, uh, you know, I'm just, verse 8, with the blast of thy nostrils, the waters were gathered together. I'm imagining God just kind of leaning forward and just, 
blowing his nose on the Red Sea. Mm. <laughs> and it's uh, it's kind of a funny visual to me. Well, it, it is an interesting visual to us because we don't normally yeah. think about that. Now, in the previous chapter, it talks about the fact that there was a wind <clears throat> that blew on the water from the north all right. night long and, 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 and made that section of the Red Sea uh, dry so that they could go uh, go over. But uh, I think it is interesting that, that the way that they talk about that happening is they say, you know, it was like a blast from your nostrils. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that we, you know, we are kind of a, a germophobic society sometimes. And so, like, I think people are afraid to, like, even breathe out of their nose because that's, you know, it's kind of gross, we might say. Uh, here, that's how they ascribe it happening. That's how he moves the water. He just blows out of his nose and the waters all pick up. Well, I'll take that too to mean, you know, what's going to be your strongest force of air coming from you? I mean, right. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, it's going to be through your mouth, right? You're going to be blowing with your lungs. Um, but the nostril, you're not really going to have that strong of a, of a force to it. I I just, I think about it something, you know, it, 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 strikes me the same way as when someone says that, you know, the Lord did this massive thing, this great thing with just his little mm-hmm. finger, you know, it, the Lord just takes the least amount of effort to do something that is just incredible, mm-hmm. um, which, which just broadcasts his power and might. Well, one of the things that really hits me, this is, there's a very interesting phrase that we don't really read a lot um, throughout scripture. And that's in verse two the Lord is my strength and song. Well, there mm-hmm. are only two other places in the whole of scripture where this particular phrase shows up strength and song. One of them is in Psalm 118, And the other one is in Isaiah chapter 12. So this particular phrase that, that he is my strength and song, this, this idea of, Yah is my strength and song comes up these particular places, Mm -hmm. especially where it says, and he has become my salvation. And so it's interesting that this song of Moses that talks about God's uh, ability to overcome that his ability to save his people becomes a phrase that is sort of almost a meme. Mm -hmm. I, I, Mm -hmm. I know we don't often think about Bibles having memes, but, um, the idea of a meme is that here you have a picture that has an overall context, but it is used in different other contexts to make a point. And so strength and song becomes this idea that's connected with God's salvation of his people. And so it is here in Exodus 15. It's in Psalm 119 that talks about God's salvation. And of course, it's in Isaiah 12 that talks about the same thing. So I'm I'm just fascinated by like the origin of this particular phrase right. being here in the Song of Moses. Yeah, I think there's a a lot of phrases that have similar origins, you know, because this is the it's like the first hymn in the Bible, the first Psalm, you know, and and just phrase after phrase, I think it, it's kind of originating a lot of concepts that the Psalms and the poetry in the Old Testament pick up on. Um, I know when I've done a little more of an intensive ongoing reading of the Psalms, you know, I was just amazed at constantly seeing things that were connecting back to Exodus 15. And um, 
I remember uh, becoming convinced that Exodus 15 really summarizes pretty much the whole the whole book of Psalms, just all the different concepts, and it's just so full of language that I think it embodies the general way that God's people would always see and identify with God. And I think that's something kind of initial that strikes me is just how clearly just in this moment, there's just such clarity in how well they understand who God is, how well they understand who they are in relation to God, how well they understand how God responds to the enemies of his people, what he'll do. And then even beyond that, what he'll continue to do. And it's just like if they could just preserve the attitude of this one moment, you know. Which we totally know they do. Mm, yeah. Just oh, even yeah. in the Consistent later part of the chapter. Yeah, all the yeah. way through. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so it sounds like what we're saying is that we probably uh, should look at the narrative portion toward the end for this section uh, you know, more about the waters of Mara. And then maybe in, uh, you know, the next section, we go more into the Psalm itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we, we know we've already studied through what, what, uh, Moses is summarizing in the Psalm, right? This is what we've been looking at over the past few weeks. So, um, we want to, you know, let, let's, let's talk about just generally what we see from, uh, 22, I would say to the end of the chapter, uh, so they're able to leave, they're able to get out, and they come to a place of, of bitter water. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that that we can recognize is, of course, just as very, as very basis, here's God taking care of his people. He's, he's living up to the promises that he's given so far, and he continues to live up to those promises. Um and, uh, you know, Moses, it seems, you know, takes an instance here where, uh, you know, he encourages them, or at least, well, I, I guess it would be the Lord himself talking, but to actually, you know, encourage them in verse 26 to cleave to the Lord, to, to diligently hearken to his voice. Um, so, so God is providing for them, but at the same time, uh, he is charging them basically to, to uphold these things and to continue, uh, with him. Well, I, one of the things I think is very interesting about it is that he specifically says that he doesn't, he's going to keep the diseases of the Egyptians from being on them. And so you mm. hear, you have this, this place of the water that he is using as sort of a word picture for the healing that he's going to provide for his people in preventing them from having to deal with those terrible diseases. Yeah. It seems like there's an implication just in that statement that they don't deserve what they've received and that there's a sense of like fear that they need to have of unworthiness. Uh, just kind of like a, almost like a sense of humility before the Lord you know, that there is this possibility that they could receive the same thing that they've just seen God did to the Egyptians. I think it also it makes it, I think, more apparent as well that from God's perspective, this was really a beginning. 
whereas for the people, this may have seemed like it was meant to be an end. Um, you know, like what we'll see as we go forward, obviously, is the people, you know, constantly are impatient with getting to their destination. And I think it shows that God had something much greater in mind in delivering them from Egypt to where that was really just almost like they were being, they were being born at that point to begin to really just begin this process that God had in mind. You know, we, uh, well, I know this is kind of forward looking, but it's interesting that here he makes it conditional in verse 26, that the healing that he can do for them is not because uh, they are superior because of some sort of race or they're not superior for anything because of who they are. It has to do with whether or not they will listen to what he says. Well, and there's some other aspects to this that we want to deal with like later on as well. But, uh, you know, so, but, but those points are very well made. Um, you know, I, interesting too, that they, they numbered the palm trees in verse 27. Uh, you know, 12 wells of water, three score and 10 palm trees. It's like what? 70 palm trees. Yes. Uh, so it's like, okay. Yeah. Uh, just interesting to me. It's just one of those things that like, you know, like sometimes you see scripture, just put these details in that may not be immediately, you know, uh, important, but, uh, well, you know what? Interesting. Interestingly enough, I just got back from Palm Springs not too long ago and Palm Springs not only, uh, is known for being a place where there are literally natural aquifers in the, in the ground, but they also have one of the largest, actually the largest date palm farm in the United States. And when you look at the surrounding region, you see how deserted it is. And you just see how incredibly bleak the landscape is. And then out of nowhere, you would have this place where you would have these palm trees. You would have the place where you have the natural aquifers in the ground. Well, that would certainly get your attention. If you are traveling through the desert, and if you are familiar with what the, the Sinai region looks like, um, or at least this part that's on the other side of, the, uh, of that branch of the Red Sea, it is bleak. It is empty. Mm. That place mm-hmm. is inhospitable. So they've come through the Red Sea. They are happy they've escaped the Egyptians. But you get to a place and you say, you got water. Finally, we have water. That's great. And then it turns out the water's terrible and you can't drink it. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's terribly disappointing here. We thought we were safe, but the water's bad. And so all of this sort of, I mean, you're talking about them, them counting everything. I think the counting everything is just the fact that it's significant for the region. Man, this place, this place looks like paradise to us compared to, you know, uh, the re- the surrounding region, and then they come and it's like, oh no, the water is terrible. I just I don't know. There's yeah. a little bit of a humor in that um, to me. Yeah, it's interesting too that they had to pass through a place of bitter water before briefly, then from there That's passing a to a place of more abundant waters. You know, like this paradise type setting, like you're saying. That's a good point. I had, I, I uh, yeah. And it's, it's interesting that they, that they would have had to have acknowledged that God was providing for them 
before coming to that second spring of water, you know, just the timing of that. And, and I think like it would heighten their capacity to potentially have what happened there in Elim really impact their view of God even more, you know, and I wonder if what God was trying to do is ideally build on all of the concepts that they had just confessed and just continue to add in more concepts of his glory for them to keep and understand, you know, and, 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 and along with that, this idea of the building of concepts, we're going to see in just a little bit here in the next couple of chapters, this idea of them keeping his regulations regarding even the Sabbath day, but he has not given them the law yet. So we, right, we have right. not received the law, but even before mm. the time of receiving the law, even before we get there, one of the things that we can see is that he is telling them his expectations. He is telling them that he expects them to follow his word. He hasn't really given them all right. Right. But yet he's letting them know that his care for them is contingent on their obedience. I think one, one observation that kind of strikes me about the song is that is how much clarity God's judgment brought for them. Uh, You know, just about God's nature. So for instance, like verse 13 compared to verse 16, you know, God's wrath against their enemies also made God's gentleness very clear for them, uh, made God's shepherding very clear, his redemption very clear, um, but it also made terror fall upon uh, his enemies. So it's it's just interesting, like, how much came out of God acting in vengeance and jealousy to redeem um, you know, qualities that almost like you'd think those aren't qualities that you would, that you would think would come out of wrath, but it's, it's just the nature of how God, how God punishes and why he punishes, you know, and that when God judges, there's always clarity and repentance and fear. That well, Jeremy had that. mentioned, uh, the, the fact that, you know, they, it shows that they, you know, have a knowledge of God. But I mean, your specificity in terms of the clarity of, of his judgments and the carrying out of those judgments, um, it's very well said. Go ahead, Jeremy. Well, I mean, what, going along with what Brian was saying, you have a lot of things that are spoken about him that feel contradictory if we don't understand who God is. It says, you know, that he is a warrior in verse three. He cast them into the sea. He's thrown them down. Uh, his burning anger consumes him as chaff. And then you get to verse 13. He says, in your loving kindness, uh, I think that the King James there says mercy. This has to do with God's uh, quality of covenant keeping, uh, his chesed, this idea that he is he is always loyal and will do the things that are in accordance with his loyalty. But the h- hilarious thing about this he says, you have guided them to your holy habitation. They're not going to get there for a really long time. But he, they talk about it as if it has already happened. God does what he says he's going to do. And that means that they can consider themselves already having been brought to the land. Uh, again, talking about the people, they haven't met any of these people. 
They haven't been to Philistia. They have not been to Edom. They have not been to Moab. They do not know that those people are trembling. Not from an experiential angle. And yet they talk about them already being afraid of them. Now we do know that it's true. Now when we get to when we get to Jericho, uh, Rahab specifically says that they are afraid. She specifically mentions the fact that they are afraid of these people, but we don't know that until we get there. Um, only one other thing, and that's in verse eleven. He says, "Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness?" Uh, we talked about the fact that that in God freeing his people from Egypt, what he was doing was he was passing judgment on the false gods of Egypt and doing that. And they, they functionally admit that in the song that God is a, that the, the God they follow Yahweh is above all the other gods. Psalms is Psalm 45, and I think that really hits on the same theme. Um, you know, I, I brought up, I think it was our last podcast, I talked about some connections in the Psalms with the Exodus, particularly at starting in uh, the third book of the Psalms, Psalm 73 through 89. Um, but Psalm 45 is really interesting. Um, because it's quoted in Hebrews 1, it's very messianic. And uh, Psalm 45 starts with talking about, you know, the Messiah as being someone who's very fair and graces upon his lips. But then he says in verse 3, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty, and in your majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. Your peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. And then I think something that he says next also relates to Exodus 15, verse 18, where he says, The Lord shall reign forever and ever. He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And that's that's quoted in uh, Hebrews chapter 1, related to Jesus. You know, so like, seems like people of faith in the Old Testament understood this concept that God was constantly fighting for the cause of his people. And they took great courage and comfort in that when they were suffering. Um, and there's, there's other connections that I think relate to that, but I, just to open it up that like, this is something that you see a lot in the Old Testament. And I think is fulfilled by implication in the New Testament, even by just the fact that Psalm 45 is clearly alluding to Jesus particularly. Um, so I'll stop there and ask like, you know, do you guys 
have any other examples where you see that same concept maybe spoken of or played out? Well, I mean, the entirety of scripture that talks about his, his coming to the aid of his people, even Jeremiah refers to him as uh, his dread champion. This idea that God right. stands yeah. on his side against his enemies. I mean, I don't know that you can, I'm going to say this very carefully. I don't know that you can really believe in a God who is only sweet, kind, and inoffensive. Because right. if you yeah. believe in a God who helps, then you have to believe in a God who is powerful enough to help you with what's really going on. So he is a warrior. What that means is that he does battle for his people. He destroys the enemy. And that is a demonstration of his covenant loyalty. You know, I was always, I was always, you know, I'm a Monty Python fan. And for a long time, time, (laughs) no, I'm serious. For a long time, there's this bit about the holy hand grenade that says, shall, uh, shall blow thine enemies into little bits in thy mercy. And they're kind of joking about this idea about how something so destructive could also be a demonstration of his mercy. Well, part of that is this, um, I think a poor translation choice in the King James of trying to call uh, his loving kindness or his covenant loyalty or his steadfast love in the ESV as mercy. Well, okay. So mercy is a part of it, but there's a whole lot more going on. These people just said that God threw horses and chariots in the water and then drowned them all in his loving kindness. Now, at first, that seems a bit strange. You go, well, I don't really understand how that works out. Until you remember that this is a God who really does work for his people and he fights their battles. Yeah, I think you you really see that in Habakkuk. Um, You know, a prophet who is really having trouble reconciling the condition of Jerusalem with God's faithfulness, you know, like you mentioned, Jeremy has, has said, uh, you know, is God, is God always faithful to his nature and character and promise and covenant, even when it seems like everything around us by appearance seems to be contradicting these things that we're reading. Well, Habakkuk is a prophet who had that trouble. Um, it looked like God's people were being overtaken by injustice and he knew that God was powerful enough to change the situation and to judge that situation. But unrighteousness was just dominating God's nation more and more. And when God speaks to him, um, Habakkuk ends up in chapter three, recognizing in verse 13, you went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of evil, of the evil to lay open, to lay him open from thigh to neck, you know, and, And I think an interesting thing about that and where Habakkuk's uh, prayer or song here ends up leading is uh, verse 18, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk in my high places. The idea is like people from this point forward they would understand that because of God's unrelenting faithfulness, this is not just something God did for the nation. This is also something God does for individuals. And that when God acts in faithfulness in one way, whether it be nationally or worldwide, 
it implies ways that God acts toward individuals because God is not just the God of nations and peoples. He's ultimately making covenants with people who are individually seeking him. And so therefore, if God is willing to redeem a nation, God is ultimately seeking to redeem individuals because his global or national acts of faithfulness are ultimately striving to convey something much more intimate, if that makes sense. And if you guys have any thoughts on that. The example of uh, Jesus, the warrior, fashioning a scourge, going into the temple, driving out the uh, money changers and the sellers in the temple. And in John's gospel, which I I believe that happened twice, uh, the initial one that happened early in his ministry, uh, it says in chapter 2, verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. The zeal of your house has consumed me. Uh, I I think Jesus did that not only to show what God's willing to do, but to show what we must be willing to do for God. So God's willing to go to bat for us. Um, And, and, you know, that's, that's what, that's what, uh, Moses is saying in Exodus 15 is, you know, look what God's done for you. And at the same time, on the other end, the implication, at least I would say there's an implication here too, and a very straight up command toward the end of the chapter to you, you uphold what God says. You diligently listen to him. You, you, you do his will. Um, so there, there is a seriousness to that. And, uh, I, I would agree with what Jeremy said. I mean, if we, if we think that, all we have is just, you know, uh, I think I've heard, heard it said before is like, if it fits all just flowers and puppies all the time, you know, uh, you know, where's the justice, where's the righteousness, where's, when do the, you know, where do we see the wicked punished? And, and this idea of salvation sometimes requires the overcoming of the enemy. They are, you know, at the, they are stuck at the end of the red sea and they can't go any further. Because you have the advancing army. They have the Red Sea at their back. They have the army in their front. They are stuck. There is no way for them to save themselves. It requires God stepping in and intervening for them to even be able to do what is uh, to even be saved. Now, Now, those of us who are on this side of the cross understand that there is another situation later on where it's an impossible situation. The the enemy is death. Jesus was dead. You read about the two on the road to Emmaus who feel like they it's done. The Lord is there, you know, Jesus is there to show us that no, this is, you know, this is not the end. Um so I, I think I think your comparison is is very, very apt. Um you know Egypt is sort of personified or at least given a voice in verse nine. I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My lust shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Um, and, and I, I always love when this happens in scripture, right? And I think you get it in, in revelation as well. Um, when you see in, uh, believe chapter nine. Yeah. Revelation, I'm sorry, chapter 20, verse nine, 
Uh, they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The the sense where, of course, verse eight mentions uh, gathering forces together to do battle. Uh, the imagery of the adversary, the one who resists God, building up and building up and building up and building up and saying all these things. Yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then just in an instant, God immediately destroys them. Uh, I, I love that imagery and you see it in a, in a number of places, I think. Yeah. And that kind of makes me think about, um, a few places where you see, um, Jesus talk about him overcoming the enemy and casting him down. Uh, like John twelve thirty one, um, where Jesus, uh, near the end of his ministry, would have been help, would have been helpful if I would have already been turned there in my Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's where he talks about now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Um, the idea of like thrown down, you know. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of similar to the language of what they're reflecting God had done with Pharaoh and his army, and. You know, not just there, but I think there's an interesting theme with Romans chapter 16, verse 20, where he says, you know, the Lord will soon crush Satan under your feet. So it's it's like God had already won the victory. He had shown the sign of complete victory. and But they still needed to go into Canaan, and there were battles where they still had to fight, and there was still resistance. But that didn't mean that did not mean that the battle had not been fully determined yet. And I think that's like Romans 16. Jesus did cast out Satan. Satan has been overcome. But when we struggle against Satan, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden the battle's not won and that God's not been faithful and that, you know, his victory over Satan is not true or powerful or complete. Um, and I think it puts us into the same position as as Israel when, when they went into Canaan. You know, they were able, like we talked about earlier, to learn even more richly great concepts of God's faithfulness by continuing to see him gain that victory more and more faithfully. Well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to make any kind of broad assumptions and I don't want to go, you know, too far past scripture. But it's almost like this coming through the Red Sea is kind of like a baptism. I mean, the point could be made if you worked really hard to say that this coming through the Red Sea was like being baptized into Moses. But of course, the the sad thing is that even though they had been saved, there was still a future ahead of them where the individuals had to maintain that faithfulness. And when they did not maintain that faithfulness, it didn't go well for them. Um, of course, I was being a little bit sarcastic. Obviously, 1 Corinthians 10 does make the point that this is like baptism. Um, but the problem is that they did not stay faithful. They had been saved, but they didn't reach the end. You know, we're going to talk to some of our friends and neighbors who have this idea that salvation is a one and done situation that it's just one time saved in your save period. And doesn't matter what you do, but it is evident from this passage, from what we read in first Corinthians 10, from what we read in Hebrews, uh, really all the way from like two through four, that is not a guarantee. They did have a salvation, but they were individually responsible 
to live in that salvation so they could receive uh, the final promise. Well, not to not to move us too far ahead, but one thing I just noticed, I was looking at Second uh, Kings 2 uh, to you know, kind of think about Elisha making the waters uh, pleasant or, you know, healing the waters. The Lord heals the waters in Jericho, uh, which is, you know, really fascinating in and of itself, considering the context of that city and that location. But uh, what's interesting there is, you know, what happened, you know, very soon before that was, you know, Elijah being taken up in a whirlwind uh, by God. And so not long after that great event, you know, what's the first place that Elisha goes out to, you know, after, by the way, the sons of the prophets try to look for Elijah to no, to no effect. Uh, but he goes out to, to this area and, uh, verse, verse 18 tells us he was, he was, you know, tarrying at Jericho, but it says that the men of the city are saying, Hey, you know, the situation is great, but the waters, you know, crown's barren there you know the water is no good and uh you know uh, we we find that that the way that that is healed at that point is he casts some salt into the water and uh you know he says thus saith the lord i've healed these waters there shall not be from thence any more death or barren land and we find the waters healed at least the, the author of that book says that they're healed to this day according to the saying of elisha which he spake um, I don't, you know, I don't want to belabor too much with that, but it, I think it's interesting that in the same sense, you know, the first place that Israel goes after this, they're, they're getting, you know, getting to a place of bitter water. that's made sweet or, or healed in some fashion. Uh, and the same with Elisha. After he immediately, not only, uh, not, not only crosses water, but he, he literally parts the water. Indeed. Indeed. You know, I, I, it's an unfortunate, it's an unfortunate sort of consequence of either our language or just the way that we teach Bible to young kids. We tend to think of Elijah or Eliyah or Eliyahu uh, as this big and mighty prophet. But really, honestly, he is a much more of a forerunner for Elisha, who comes later on. And mm-hmm. Elisha's miracles are bananas. The dude does some amazing stuff. And when you really want to do a lot of the comparing, the miracles that Elisha does, more often than not, find an echo in the things that Jesus does on earth. So just right. uh, just kind of an interesting thing that there is a lot to this idea when Jesus refers to that John the Immerser is like Eliyahu, um, that he is this kind of this fiery precursor for the one who's going to do the amazing miracles. Well, that 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 works as well in a sense that of appreciating that there's that point where Elijah becomes extremely despondent when he's fleeing from Jezebel. And I think the implication is that he was hoping that that would be a mass change for Israel, that the big victory at Mount Carmel would lead to massive changes in the nation. And that doesn't happen. And, uh, 
you know, God takes that opportunity, I think, to to tell him, like, it's not about the big things all the time. Right. Uh, you know, sometimes it's the little things and, and what what characterizes the the career of Elisha. But, you know, little small situations where he he does things that are amazing. Uh, but nonetheless, I would say I would argue that it's not really the kind of grandstanding big picture stuff that Elijah seemed to excel in. No, I think it's a good point because he does, he do he deals with simple people in small situations, but he still does amazing stuff in that. I mean, dude's axe right. head falls in the water. I mean, it's and his complaint is like like that was I was borrowed, and I got to pay this dude back for his axe head. And, and you think, man, why you got to worry the prophet about that? But the prophet straight up comes out and takes care of it. So I, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about it that way, but that's a good point. Yeah, and you and you see definitely like compared to all the judgments on Egypt, healing water is like so small. And it's interesting in verse twenty four, God doesn't rebuke them for their complaint. He he just shows them the waters and tells them that he was, you know, testing them to have them obey his command. But you just kind of think about that like they complained and god responded like they spoke words and god responded to the words they spoke they had a problem of like i don't think they were thirsting to death they were just like thirsty and worried that maybe they weren't going to find anything to drink and god solved the problem know, man yeah, three days is a long time to not find that water. is a long time yeah <laughs> i i can't go three hours without getting a glass of water <laughs> But I do think you see the same nature, like kind of like the Exodus being fulfilled in more personal ways, like in Habakkuk and how Jesus and his ministry fulfilled Psalm 45 by connecting with individuals and, you know, like defending, you know, the tax collectors and the sinners um, to the Pharisees and forgiving people of their sins individually. I think it's, it's kind of the same principle here where, you know, God healed these waters for the nation but God was also looking to heal people and their hearts and their broken lives in much more intimate and individual ways as well. You know, one thing, and this may be stretching, but uh, one thing that kind of occurs to me too with the bitter waters at Mora, and then they go to this, you know, relatively plenteous place called Elim. I mean, 12 wells of water, they're going to be able to get a whole lot out of that, I think. Um, And of course, this is likely millions of people, um, but, uh, God never does anything, you know, pointlessly. Um, I don't think there's ever a point where he's just kind of like, oh yeah, you here, you're healed. And there's no point to that. God will always use that for a purpose. And he, in, in this particular point, he uses this for the purpose of showing, listen, if, if you, if you keep doing this, if you listen to me and do what I say, I'm going to make sure you're going to be okay. I'm going to provide for you. And, uh, <clears throat> in Mark eight, uh, a blind man in Bethsaida, uh, wants to touch Jesus and, uh, Jesus takes him, leads him out of the town does something to heal him basically and asks him if he sees anything. And in verse 24, he looked up, he said, I see men as trees walking. And then he put his hands on his eyes. Verse 25 made him look up. He was restored. And he saw every man clearly. Uh, one of the very few times I 
think might be the only time that Jesus sort of half healed someone. And Jesus, I don't believe in that context, was doing that uh, pointlessly. He was trying, I believe he was trying to teach his disciples that, you know, there are some things that you're not seeing clearly. You've got some aspect of this, but you're, you're, you're not getting the whole picture. Um, and that, that may be, uh, you know, really when we look at this, that's just kind of one parallel that I saw is that, you know, God's going to use these situations to say, okay, here's, here's a situation, here's a bad situation. And, uh, like, like you had mentioned, Bryant, that, you know, it's sort of used to test them. And whenever God is testing us or trying to teach us, he wants us to be successful. I think Mm -hmm. it's important for us to always incorporate that. When we look at God testing, he's not testing to sort of hope that we fail. He's testing with the, with the hope that we are successful in these things. But that was just one thing I I, kind of saw that might be parallel there. I don't want to, well, the last thing I want to think is interesting. We don't really read about God referring to himself as their healer in this kind of language before, although he does several times heal them. But this idea that he refers to himself as this healer, I don't think we can overlook the idea that Jesus refers to himself as a physician. And even and even the word even the word savior Sozo in the Greek has the connection to someone who is a healer. And so you have a lot of forward thinking, even in this phrase, like I said, it kind of, I'm not saying it's a small phrase, but it just kind of seems like it's out there with no explanation. But in the new Testament, we really appreciate this idea of a healer. So as we as we uh, continue to study through this, we want to remember, you know, I can I can study as much as I want, read as much as I want, but if I'm not properly applying it, uh, you know, it's really for nothing. Um, you know, I recently, uh, late earlier on this year, was studying with a fellow that um, I think is one of the first universalists I've come across uh, as far as in my studies and talking to people at least in Mississippi. Uh, I don't think you're going to find him very often. We were staying together. Everything was great. But when it got to the point when he realized that I was saying, no, this actually means that we need to act upon it, that we need to change our life to fit this pattern. Uh, he was very resistant to that. And uh, he did not go to any more studies after that. And, uh, you know, so, so I, I think that's something to consider. Uh, it's up to us to make these decisions to say, okay, this is, uh, this is the way that we need to go or not. 
uh, and if we don't, if we're not willing to do that, if we just want to study the Bible academically, then, well, it's really no different than if we were to study the Odyssey or the Iliad or some other ancient text and uh, just kind of say, okay, you know, this is what this text says and just leave it at that. Uh, so we want to try to apply God's word so that it can affect us and so our hearts can change to where God wants us to be. Um, so just one quick thing for us to kind of uh, start with in this, and we're looking forward with this as well, um, but it was mentioned, and we kind of touched on it a couple of times, that uh, you know, the, in, in verse 13, the holy habitation uh, I would say as Christians, what we learn from the New Testament is that we're really supposed to be acting and living as if we're already in heaven. Um, and I know that's not the reality that we live in today, but in Colossians 1 and verse 13, Paul says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Uh, so we want to appreciate that that uh, God is showing us that I can be a part of that eternal existence now. Um, and, and certainly all of the fulfillment of heaven is not there yet, or at least it's not something that we're a part of yet. Judgment day has not occurred yet, but we need to be living with this sense that, that, you know, God has already brought us to his holy habitation, that we we're already there. Well, and there's a, um, there's a bunch of places in the yeah. New Testament that continue with that thought. I mean, Philippians, for example, refers to the fact that we have our citizenship in heaven. Uh, we are to live as citizens in the first chapter. Uh, you all have the idea in Hebrews chapter 12 when he says, you not will will come to, but you have come to the Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, you have all the the elements in uh the last couple of chapters of revelation that talk about this city where they, you know, you have this idealized vid- uh, vision of the church that is both about eternal life in heaven, but also the eternal life that begins now. So I think it's very well said. Uh, these people had been brought to the holy habitation, although they were not there yet. So th- that's a good point. Well, they were a nation. I mean that, you know, he had made them a nation and again, the scriptures point this out. He had made them a nation in the Red Sea. You know, as they passed through the Red Sea, that you mentioned baptism with that. Um, <clears throat> so I, I think I think we do ourselves a disservice when we just think about heaven as some far off thing. Of, you know, oh, we'll look forward to that someday. But now this world is just, you know, oh, this world is terrible. But Steve, in all and, of our uh, hymns, talk about we want to get out of this life and go to heaven. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. We shall see the king someday. Brian, did you have anything on that? I was thinking, I was thinking about it, you know, and I, I think it is a really, really good thought, you know, because if I, if I understand, for instance, that God is my inheritance, you know, and that really being in heaven is about being with God, then, then it is like I'm in heaven because I have perfect fellowship with God and heaven is just about perfect fellowship with God. Um, it's making me think about Hebrews 11, where it says Abraham, after patient, patiently waiting, received what was promised. Um, and then it also at the end of Hebrews 11 says that they did not receive what was promised like we have received it. But I think 
Abraham received fellowship with God. And I think what God has done through time is he's made it more and more clear to all people what is available through having fellowship with him and how, how jealous we should be for that fellowship and the, the glory of that fellowship and how doomed we are when we're outside of that fellowship. You know, so I think the better I understand the glory of just being offered fellowship with God, the more I can live now with that perfect understanding and hope and joy, even when in physical ways on the external side of things, I have not yet received the fullness of that. But by faith, if I understand what all of that means and what I've received, then I can rejoice in that as if I have received it, like you're saying. Yeah, this. I mean, this is also related to something else that was uh, mentioned as far as when you look forward and see the murmuring of the people continuing, the whining and complaining as they make their way to the promised land. And, and then, you know, when they get there, they're like, no, we can't do this. And so God says, okay, this generation is done. Uh <laughs> going to wander for 40 years. Right. Um, uh, but you know, the reason for that was, was that because of their lack of faith and, uh, it, it kind of makes me think of how often we want to avoid the trials, avoid the mourning. Like, so, so for example, someone who is having to deal with their sins, um, you, you, there's a couple of ways you can go about that, right? You can be like Saul. Saul basically was saying, okay, I'm sorry. Can we just get back to the way things were, uh, you know, when he was confronted by Samuel and then you have David confronted by Nathan. He's saying I've sinned against the Lord and he recognizes his problem. He, he's not immediately saying, well, let's just get back to the way things are. And in fact, if you look at Psalm 51, you see it took him a while to get back to the way things ought to be, uh, in his heart. And that's the kind of heart that we need to have. Um, we don't need to skip the morning and trying to go straight to the comfort and say, oh, well, that's sin. That's, that's no problem. Um, we don't need to skip over our journey to the promised land. Uh, we need to live right now with this, this mindset that says, I'm going to serve my God every day. I'm going to be devoted to him. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm going to be willing to do what's necessary to get there. To, to that promised land, to that uh, Sabbath rest, according to, you know, Hebrews three and four. Uh, so you guys have any thoughts on that? I think you said it very well. Uh, I mean, no, I, I think it's absolutely right. You have to have the humility. If you're going to be talking about the kind of salvation that's needed, just like in this case, you know, one of the first things that he says to his people after they have crossed and seen his power is that you're also going to have to continue to be obedient. So he has brought us, but at the same time, we have to continue to be obedient. He has saved us, but if we want the healing he's going to provide, it requires humility and obedience on our part. Yeah, and I think one thing with humility, um, one of the applications and I think the really the primary thing that I was thinking as far as application is in humility just realizing how important it is to be seeing and looking for God's ongoing deliverances um, because God was constantly delivering Israel from that point forward um, all the time 
not just in the more obvious ways, like when he sent them judges, you know, but just even in more intimate ways. And David in Psalm 18, I think a part of what made David a man after God's own heart, David recognized God's deliverance, even when it wasn't something that necessarily looked like the Exodus. You know, so Psalm 18, the introduction is, he spoke the words of the song in the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, I love you, Lord, my strength. And I love that. You know, when you recognize that somebody loves you to the extent where they are, they are someone who actually delivers you from trouble and they care about your problems, that binds you into that relationship powerfully. You know, and I think with the Exodus, you know, the key thing is if they could just continue to recognize how God was continuing to act perfectly on the principles that they were exalting there, they would have just been so bound to the Lord. And, and I think we can do that, you know, our baptism, when we, when we're buried with Christ in baptism, that teaches us about the way that God will continue to faithfully deliver us from that point forward. If we'll learn to recognize it and pay attention And I've just seen that as something so important for me in my life in temptation or even when God forgives me of sins I've committed and I ask for his forgiveness, like seeing his deliverance in those things as more real and not just like moving on without stopping prayerfully to reflect on what God had to do in order for me to be delivered from temptation, to be protected from evil, to be forgiven of my sins and especially with Christ on the cross. Yeah, and to see that from his perspective, that this is yeah, not exactly. him taking away your fun or taking away your experience or your freedom, that in fact, quite the opposite, he has freed you. He has made you free. He has uh, given you liberty um, you know, to break the shackles and the bonds of sin and to move forward and be able to praise him in the way that you, that you ought. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. Well, the other thing we might want to focus on as well is just the fact that, you know, God can take care of you. God, God will provide, uh, it, that, that just, that's such a real application for us to consider and remember, especially when we look at how much in turmoil the world seems and how unstable everything feels. Um, it's important to know that, that God will take care of us, uh, even if, uh, a situation or test or trial seems difficult. We move through that and we will, we will, will reach the waters of Elim. We will reach the promised land. We will reach, uh, that place with him someday. Uh, but we live as if we're already there. Well, I think with that, Stephen, um, just with that thought and with Exodus 15, um, I think an application is, we have a choice of what to do with our ignorance. You know, our, our ignorance can be a tool used for doubt, you know, or every time I'm uncertain about my circumstances or my circumstances, you know, kind of take me off guard and I don't know what to do, or I'm suffering in some way or facing some difficulty that I don't know how to handle, you know, or whatever. Will my ignorance of the future and how things can be resolved, will that be a tool for doubt or a tool to empower me to trust in God's promises and his faithfulness, you know, because based on Exodus 15 alone, along with the overwhelming context of everything else God has ever done, especially in Jesus, 
you know, God has striven, like Hebrews chapter six says, to show all the more the faithfulness of all his characteristics to those who would inherit salvation through Jesus Christ. And that God has given that as an anchor for our soul, you know, and, and we can know that even in our ignorance, we can still trust that God has prepared deliverance. He's always prepared deliverance. He's always acting for my well-being. He's always planning things out and scheming and devising ways to bless me and bring me closer to him. And, and I don't have to understand how God is going to do that in every situation. I don't have to understand uh, how my circumstances can even be resolved. All I need to understand is that God is faithful and that God's covenant is a personal covenant that he's made with me. And that my circumstances do not dictate truth and my circumstances do not dictate whether or not God is still God. God's faithfulness dictates everything else. And I think if we can start there, we can have a more unyielding sense of resolved joy and focus and faith, even when things are perplexing and difficult and we can't see the future. There was no way for Israel to know that he would literally blow the waters on each side. There was literally no way for them to know that he would separate the advancing army from his people. There was no way to know that he would suddenly stop whatever force was holding the water back. Pharaoh and his army was, from their standpoint, the strongest enemy that they could conceive of. They had seen the power of Pharaoh's army the entirety of the time that they had been in Egyptian captivity. The idea that God could do this was something that they just couldn't imagine. But God knew what he was going to do. And he was the one who brought it about. So what an important lesson. And also, I don't know, I think Brian said that they didn't, that God doesn't really say anything about them grumbling about the water. But at a certain point, you have to go, you know, the same God who just literally drowned Pharaoh's army. He can take care of you if you're a little bit thirsty. Come on, man. Yeah, that's unfortunately going to be their modus operandi for quite a long time. Uh, so, and, and that's, you know, again, the story of Israel is a story of unfaithfulness and it's, it's what we need to learn about our own unfaithfulness. Yeah. So, and I think that gets back well to said. the quality of Abraham's faith in Romans four. You know, like, because the idea that is portrayed in Romans 4, especially verse 13, is that no one will be saved except through the faith of Abraham. And Abraham had a quality of faith where he thought very deeply about what God had actually said and what that implies about his nature and what that implied about Abraham's condition and what Abraham needed to do in obedience. And one of the things is God promised Abraham that through his seed, all nations would be blessed. And Abraham at the point when Romans four is considering that promise in Abraham's faith, Abraham recognized that he was too old and Sarah was too old for that promise to be possible. But what it says is he thought about the condition of his body. And instead of weakening in faith, he gave glory to God because he recognized that the implication is that God can bring life to the dead. And the implication is that God can call into being even things that don't even exist. And so that's the mistake that Israel will make is they'll be with it. They'll be there in the moment with God, but then they won't think about the implications of what God's actions mean for the future and what it, 
what it implies about his power and to take care of them in the future. And I think that's exactly it, Jeremy, is God didn't need to outline every single possible problem they would face and how he was capable of solving every little minute problem. The Exodus proves enough. I mean, it proves everything else that they would need to know about his care, his power, his authority. And if they would have just digested that and thought about that, like Abraham thought about that one promise, they would have been able, I think, to respond much differently. Well, and on that same note, what's Moses going to be doing while they're wandering in the wilderness, but writing about Abraham and his family and all the things that happened and all this, all the, you know, all the stands that he took for faith. Um, you know, so and, and I don't know how much that of that was actually shared with the people, but you know, that's what Moses is going to be concentrating on. Yeah. And, and I think like one last thing on all of this is I think that really shows how much we need to be thinking and reflecting on our baptism you know, like how often Paul would come back to that, you know, in like Romans 6, Colossians 2, you know, it's implied in Ephesians chapter 2 when he's talking about being dead and being brought to life, you know, First Peter chapter, chapter 3, you know, just have again and again Paul bringing more implications that come from baptism. And I think that just shows that there's so much, there's so much to understand about what God did in our baptism that reflects on who we are and who God is that is meant to have a sense of permanent ongoing heart. Um, It's supposed to permanently continue to change our hearts as we realize more and more what our baptism signifies about our eternal relationship with God and our nature. Well, thank you both for being a part of this. Um, Really appreciate, uh, really appreciate you, Jeremy. Really appreciate you, Bryant. Uh, Thank you for your input and your thoughts in this process. I appreciate uh, your patience after my computer completely decided to take a nerd dive on me. Yeah. Uh, it's okay. Uh, it's okay. Uh, it happens. I mean, technology. Um, I think I hit all but, three uh, of us because cause your, your laptop decided to reboot. Uh, my computer mm-hmm, decided mm-hmm. to restart for no good reason. And then Brian had his earbuds decided that they were going to run out of batteries. Nice. Well, it all works out. Um, All right. uh, Well, next time, Lord willing, we're going to be resuming at Exodus 16. And uh, we're thankful for you again, uh, checking out uh, this podcast. And we hope that it's been beneficial for you as it's been beneficial for us. Uh, But until that next time, when we come together, we hope that you study well and be lights to God's glory.
The music used in this program is graciously provided by Symphonia. Symphonia is a nonprofit foundation whose purpose is to compose, publish, and promote hymns for congregational worship. Find out more at symphonia.com.